0: morning. Hello, can you hear me? Okay, good deal. Uh, If you have a Bible with you, you could turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 3. Ecclesiastes 3. If you're uh, somewhat new to the Bible, you find the book of Ecclesiastes in the Old Testament. If you open up your Bible roughly right to the middle, you'll probably find the book of Psalms, and you can just work forward from there Psalms, Proverbs, and then you'll find the book of Ecclesiastes. I do have one uh, order of correction that um, I'm, I find significant to point out. It must be an old, old bio. My wife and I have been married for 27 years. I know that when he said 23 years, I'm sure it hit her brain like there's a missing four years in our relationship. Um, so I'll, I'll let you know right away, 27 years. Uh, while you're finding Ecclesiastes chapter 3, I want to tell you about a man by the name of Jerem Bars. He's a uh, literary scholar, a biblical scholar. Um, and the book of Ecclesiastes plays a really important role actually in his coming to Christ, in his conversion story. Jaron Bars tells the story of being a young man and sort of racked with uh, a sense of um, existential despair and periods of depression. He grew up in Manchester, England, and uh, in a time period when um, the the culture was very tumultuous. And, and, um, you know, Jerem would pursue literature and film. The uh, French New Wave was really popular at that time and raising questions about existence, uh, about the meaning of life. And none of these things, Jerem says, uh, really helped him. In fact, they only sort of exacerbated his sense of alienation from the world. They they only deepened his sense of despair and despondency. And it was so um, profound in his life, in fact, it pushed him to the point of suicidal thoughts. And one day, Jerem Bars went to a cliff on the edge of the town that he grew up in, and, and he was determined to just throw himself off of the cliff and end his life. And there was something, as he reached the edge of the cliff and he could see the sea beyond, he said there was something about the way the sun glinted on the sea that struck him with a sense of beauty that he didn't quite understand. And it just gave him enough pause to think, I'll, I'll, I'll wait a little longer. It wasn't as though he had changed his mind, but he had changed his mind about that particular moment. Maybe I'll, I'll, I'll wait, I'll put this off. And so he turned around and walked back. And a couple of days later, a friend invited him to a Bible study. And he thought, well, you know, I guess I'll, go to a Bible study. I'll, I'll, I'll see what that's all about. And so he went with some friends and he found himself in a room full of Christian young people. And the book that they were studying together was the book of Ecclesiastes. Now, I, I don't know if you're super familiar with the book of Ecclesiastes, but if a friend came to you and said, I'm dealing with depression, despair, suicidal thoughts, Um, I don't know that your first thought would be, let's dig into Ecclesiastes, because one of the recurring refrains throughout the book of Ecclesiastes is, meaningless, meaningless, everything is meaningless. It's all vanity. It's all chasing the wind. It's probably not the first place you would go to take a depressed friend if you wanted to show him what the Bible was like. But it had the opposite effect, it had an ironic effect on Jerem Bars, because what he discovered was something he didn't know about the Bible, even growing up in a sort of home that respected, not a Christian home, but a home that respected religion, respected you know, Jerem's uh, liberty to sort of sort out what he wanted to think about religion. Um, he, he had never heard that the Bible had words like these, words that actually spoke things that he thought and things that he had felt. So he says, I was completely overwhelmed He says, I'd gone to church as a little boy, and my parents had actually prayed with us every night and read Bible stories to us, but they would always say, we don't believe this is true. We want you to make up your own mind. I, of course, thought, why should I believe this is true if they don't? So I knew something about the Bible, but I had no idea there was anything like the book of Ecclesiastes in it, and I had no idea that it addressed the questions that troubled my heart. I had thought of the Bible as most of the people in the culture thought about it in the mid-1960s, as a set of fairy stories, which weren't really about the actual world at all. Certainly nothing true in it. But here was my friend Michael reading Ecclesiastes, and it was describing exactly what I was thinking and where my life was at a time. Ecclesiastes has been my favorite book of the Bible ever since. So Jerem Bars knew about religion. He knew about church. What he didn't know was that God's word speaks to the reality of his inner life, the truth about the human condition. And that's what the book of Ecclesiastes does. It's, it's honest with us. It doesn't blow smoke. It's, it's about the painfulness of life, but also about our only hope amidst the painfulness of life. There is a hard honesty in the book of Ecclesiastes, and this hard honesty is on display in our passage today. So let's begin reading Ecclesiastes chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. For everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to break down and a time to build up, a time to weep and a time to laugh. I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. That which is already has been. That which is to be already has been. And God seeks what has been driven away. Moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, even there was wickedness. And in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. All are from the dust and to dust all return. Who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of the beast goes down into the earth. So I saw that there is nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work for that is his lot. Who can bring him to see what will be after him? This is the word of the Lord. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this word. We ask that you would bless this time we have together. Help us to see not just the brilliance and the beauty of Uh, of the scriptures help us to see that but not just that help us to see through the scriptures the glory of your son Jesus Christ we cannot be changed without that vision in uh, our spiritual eye and so we ask for that and we pray all these things in his name the name of Jesus amen Um, the most familiar part of this book of course is probably this poem that begins Ecclesiastes chapter 3. It's been recited on countless occasions. Most famously, this may be a little bit before some of y'all's time, is most famously turned into a song by folk singer Pete Seeger and was later turned into a hit song by the band The Birds. And The Birds version, uh, which I probably hear once a week, this will date me, I'm sure, uh, on my 60s on 6, on my satellite radio. Listen to the 50s on 5, 60s on 6. Anybody else? Nobody? Okay, anyway. Um, This song comes on pretty regularly on 60s on 6. It contains the added refrain um, the birds have put in there, or Pete Seeger put in there, turn, turn, turn to everything, turn, turn, turn. Um, Along with songs like Bob Dylan's The Times, They Are a Changin' and and others of that era, um, this poem in the form of the folk song has become kind of the enduring soundtrack of societal transition in America, of generational change, Um, I'm not a child of the 60s, but I'm a child of the 70s and 80s. In the the 80s, there was the classic sitcom, The Wonder Years. And The Wonder Years, which takes place in the 1960s, begins its very first episode. The very first episode of the show begins with the birds, turn, 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 and these words from Ecclesiastes. And while Solomon, who most of us think wrote this book of Ecclesiastes, Um, he's not exactly a folk singer, you know, his father was a singer of some kind, his father David, Um, but he is kind of, Solomon is kind of the folk singer of the Bible, right? Um, The book of Proverbs, which Solomon also wrote, is like um, if your dad gave you a stack of note cards with words of advice, you know, a word of advice for every day, that's kind of what Proverbs is like. Ecclesiastes is like if your dad was Bob Dylan, okay? (laughs) Solomon is here reflecting on the reality that the times they are a changing. In the poem of verses two through eight, he is reflecting on the constant turning of human toil, of human effort, and, and, and even of human life itself. There is a time for every matter, he says, in the introduction of verse one. Basically, it's always time for something. And in the beginning of verse 11, he says, he, meaning God, has made everything beautiful in its time these sorts of statements, the formulation of them, provoke the question, how do we know what time we're in? Like if you're reading through the poem, for instance, there's a time to tear and a time to sew, there's a time for this and time for that. How do you know which time you're in? Am I in the time that it's time to gather stones or am I in the time where it's time to cast stones away? How do I know which time I'm in? How do we know whether it's time to to, uh, tear down or to build, right? If you want to live life on God's time, Should we be trying to discern the times, discern what occasion this is, what's appropriate for this season, for today, for the here and now, what time is it? Well, I want to suggest that trying to figure out which among the poetic options we should be engaging in right now isn't really the primary thrust of the passage, and I'll elaborate on that a little bit later. I do think that Ecclesiastes 3 answers this question for us. What time is it? In fact, I want to argue that the whole passage tells us what time it is. So if you read verses 2 through 8 and wonder, what time is it? The context of the passage tells us. I propose from Ecclesiastes 3 that there are three things it's always time for. Three things that it's always time for. No matter what the day it is, no matter what the time of day is, And the first thing is this, it's time to enjoy God's gifts. It's always time to enjoy God's gifts. Embedded throughout Ecclesiastes, sincere ruminations on the futility, the meaninglessness of life in this vaporous existence, is this recurring encouragement to find enjoyment where you can. In his little guide to Ecclesiastes, uh, the biblical scholar Russ Meek points out that no less than six times does Solomon tell us that he's ready to enjoy food, work, drink, his spouse. He does it here in verses 12 and 13. I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live, also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil, This is God's gift to man. Life might feel pointless sometimes, but there are always occasions for enjoyment. Life isn't long, but we can focus here and there on the the little things that help make life worth living. Food and drink, even the works of your hands, your efforts. Those are gifts from God to be enjoyed. We just have to have the eyes to see them and the inclination to enjoy them. I I need this help, especially uh, when it comes to yard work. I don't know if you have yard work in your past or present. I I hate mowing the yard. I've always hated mowing the yard. Um, My first after school job when I was in high school was um, uh, as a maintenance man for uh, my local church, which if you know me at all, you you would know is hilarious. I'm not the handiest person in the world. Um, And so they wouldn't let me fix things because I couldn't really fix things. But they would say, well, you can't really break grass, right? In fact, we want you to cut it. So I would cut grass in the Houston, Texas summer heat for hours and hours every week. And I don't know if you know anything about being in Houston, Texas, especially during the summertime, it's like living in an armpit, right? <laughs> um, it's swampy, the heat, you know, breaks 100 degrees, it's just awful. And so I've always hated cutting grass, I mow my yard now. And, and I know that it's just, a, um, uh, it's just something you have to do. And I feel Ecclesiastes when I cut the grass because it's not just six days later and it needs to be cut again. And I'm thinking, this is, this is futility. It's a chasing the wind. I cut it and it just grows back over and over and over again. I especially hate the, uh, I don't know what you call it, but uh, the weed eating, weed whacking, the trimming, right? It's always knocking up, you know, my legs are bloody by the end because it's hitting gravel into my legs. And I just think, and I just think, this is subduing the earth, right? By the sweat of the brow. This is the curse. Thank you, Adam, for this. I appreciate that. I'm doing what I've been wired to do in some way, however, because when I'm done, and those of you who cut grass, you have this feeling, even if you uh, um, hate it like me. You hate cutting the grass, but there's some pleasure in when it's cut sitting down and just looking at it. You ever do that? You just sit and look at it. You see the little lines, right? The pattern maybe. I love the little, like you can make a diamond pattern, you know, if you cut both ways. If you sweep well and blow off the sidewalk, it just looks real fresh. It looks real clean. I think this is part of reflecting the image of God, actually, when he created and cultivated the garden and in the midst of his creation, stepping back to say, oh, that's good. That's nice. I saw that there's nothing better, verse 22, than that a man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. Now the ESV says lot, the CSB kind of gives us, I think a fuller sense of what that means, because that is his lot. Sounds like, oh, that's just his lot in life, but it's actually Uh, more full than that. The CSB says that is his reward. And you may think that's a reward, having to work? Well, there's a reward in working and feeling productive, feeling fulfilled in the effort. There is a reward to be found simply in the enjoyment of God's gifts, sitting with friends over drinks, discussing books or films with people. You know in the, somehow subconsciously or maybe even consciously that God has given you this creative sense and this intelligence, and he's He's enjoying the way you're enjoying using it and sharpening each other and, and being able to inspire each other creatively. Maybe you're a musician and you love just getting with other musician friends and sitting in a room and, and jamming, right? And, and playing off of each other and seeing what the other person is playing and seeing how they're playing. And that's giving you some new inspiration. The Lord has given you these gifts and he's given you these talents so you would enjoy them. He created these taste buds on our tongues. He created the nerve endings. He created our eyes and our ears, and he gave us minds and hearts and imaginations and creativity and senses of awe and wonder. Something was at work when Jerem Bars looked over that cliff and saw the sun just glinting on the water. It wasn't simply that he thought, oh, that's pretty. There was something that gave him pause spiritually when he saw it a sense of beauty that, that, that stirred his heart in a way that made him think, maybe there's something else that I just haven't quite figured out yet, that I haven't quite discovered. And the Lord has given us so many awesome things in this world to enjoy. The Bible says he has done all things well. So noticing and enjoying the well-doneness of things is one way that God commands us to enjoy him do you believe that God made all of this incredible stuff so that we wouldn't notice its incredibleness? Did he make vast fields of wildflowers flowers and not desire that we should run through them? Did he make a juicy ribeye steak? Sorry, vegetarians, right? Grilled medium rare and not want the, at least the meat eaters in the room to savor it. Did God allow wrapping paper tubes to exist? and not want little boys to play with them like swords? What kind of father would give his daughters a big dollhouse and then forbid them to play with it? It's not antithetical to the Bible or to the gospel to believe that God has given us gifts of common grace to enjoy. And Solomon is saying, enjoy these things. It's part of the meaning of life not to walk around simply intellectualizing everything, but to actually enjoy the world around you. And in fact, if if, if I don't believe in the gospel, I'll actually miss out on the true joy of things. I'll be looking to these things as drugs of some kind, medication, as appetite fillers, as fulfillers, as powers, as gods unto themselves. If steak or tea or Coffee or chocolate or books or film or anything else other than God is the highlight of my day or the ultimate joy of my heart. My joy is temporary and hollow and thin. But if I believe in the gospel and I'm oriented towards the glory of God, I can finally enjoy the chocolateness of chocolate, the way it's meant to be enjoyed and the coffiness of coffee. Only the good news frees me to enjoy things as they truly are and as they someday will be because no gift should be enjoyed to the exclusion of its giver. First Corinthians 10:31. so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do everything for the glory of God. Or First Timothy 4 4, for everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. Verse 12's reference to the good life isn't simply about enjoying God's gifts, in fact, but more directly refers to doing good with our lives, that is, living lives that are good, living righteously. The gift that we are to enjoy the most is the gift of of salvation, the gift of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. So the primary driver of our enjoyment of this life around us comes in realizing that in every conscious moment, secondly, what time is it? It's time to envision God's greatness. It's always time to envision God's greatness. It's always time to enjoy God's gifts, but to the glory of God. So even in our enjoyment of God's gifts, we are worshiping him because it's always time to be envisioning the greatness of God. Solomon encourages us to enjoy food, to enjoy drink, to enjoy our efforts, but he wants us never to lose sight of the giver of those gifts because the giver is better than his gifts. Because the giver is bigger than his gifts. The second part of verse 11 says, he has put eternity into man's heart yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. God's gifts are awesome, but God is awesomer still. He has put eternity into our heart. What does this mean? This is the basis behind the claim of the scientist Blaise Pascal, that every person carries inside of them a vast spiritual vacuum. You've probably heard the phrase, the God-shaped hole. This comes Uh, not originally from Pascal, but he kind of developed this. And the idea is this, no gift can satisfy us like the gift of the giver himself, because we have the need of the satisfaction of God himself. The hole in our hearts, the spiritual vacuum, is God-shaped, and therefore only God can fill that Void. We see from before Ecclesiastes 3 and even after Ecclesiastes 3 that Solomon is like an older man looking back on his young self and trying to help young people in particular avoid the mistakes that he made. Solomon was king, Solomon was rich, Solomon had all the women in the world that he wanted, he had all of the um, opportunities that he wanted. Anything that you and I might say would make life worth living or might be our dream to have, our fantasy to have, Solomon had or could have. He, he, he grasped for it all and he achieved all of it. And Ecclesiastes is him saying, none of it worked. None of it filled that void in my heart. It's like you've got outer space inside of you and, and trying to fill that with any created thing in the world. A job, an activity, a creativity, romance, whatever it is. It's like throwing popcorn into outer space. It can't even come close to finding purchase, to filling that void. And so Solomon is helping us to see even the good gifts that come from God that we're told that we can enjoy. Even those things cannot fill the eternity that's in our heart. Only the eternal can fill it. Pascal put it this way. What else does this craving and this helplessness proclaim but that there was once in man a true happiness of which all that now remains is the empty print and trace. This he tries in vain to fill with everything around him, seeking in things that are not there the help he cannot find in those that are. Though none can help, since this infinite abyss can be filled only with an infinite and immutable that is unchangeable object. In other words, by God himself. What this ache, this longing, this unfulfilled vastness inside of us ought to do is drive us into submissive wonder and worship of our omnipotent, omnipresent, omniscient God. Verse 14, I perceived that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. What time is it? It's, it's time to be in awe of God. It's time to be in awe of God. It's time to envision his greatness. Where Solomon goes next only underscores the sheer greatness of God. He contrasts it with the small place of man in the grand scheme of divine things. Verse 16, moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, even there was wickedness. And in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. What is he remarking on? As much as things change in the world, they really stay the same, don't they? He's talking about injustice in the world. And not just in the places where you would expect there to be justice. That's ironic and, and tragic in and of itself. The place where you expect justice. In the places of law. In the places of law enforcement. He sees wickedness. He sees injustice. Where justice is supposed to be. Where justice isn't blind, where the guilty go free and the innocent are imprisoned, where judges are corrupt and lawyers bend the truth and the law itself becomes relative and malleable. But he also sees injustice where? At the place of righteousness. If you can't find justice in courtrooms or places of government, maybe you can find it in places of religion or heavenly minded places. And Solomon says, there's wickedness in those places. There's wickedness in the churches. If we can't go any place without finding wickedness, where do we find justice? Verse 17, I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time for every matter and for every work. God can judge righteously because God is just. God is utterly devoid of wickedness because God is holy. God does not toil and he does not fail. He is high and lifted up. He is not like us and we are not like him. I said in my heart, verse 18, with regard to the children of man, that God is testing them that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. For what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beast is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath. Man has no advantage over the beasts; for all is vanity. All go to one place. All are from the dust, and to dust all return. Creatures are made of, out of dust, made out of dirt. You, me, monkeys, lions, whatever. We are created things, but the creator has always been. He has no beginning, nor does he have an end. He has always lived, and he will never age Unlike us, he does not erode or decay. Verses two through eight, this poem in this chapter is a picture of just constant change. The world is constantly changing, even as it stays the same. There are ups and downs, good times, bad times, the seasons of life come and go, an endless cycle that's always bringing change with it. But God never changes. He never changes. I've stared at this poem in verses two through eight. For a very, very long time, trying to discover some undiscovered pattern in it, which just tells you a little bit about my pride and my arrogance that I would find something that no scholar over 2,000 years has found. But I just thought, let me give it a shot. I stared at it. Do you remember those, um, I guess some people still have them. You used to go to the mall when they had malls and they had those those weird computer-generated pictures that just look like squirrely, colorful lines, but like if you looked at it just right, you could see an image somehow in it, right? You got to squint just right there. Oh, it's like a dragon on a sailboat, you know? And you get mad that you can't see the dragon on the sailboat, You're kind of staring through it. And people are always like giving you advice, you know? Like you, you, you got to look at it, but not really at it. You got to look through it. Like what even does that mean? You got to focus, but also not focus at the same time. And then you can see it. There's always some kind of trick. Well, I did that with this poem. I'm like staring at it, staring through it, like squinting my eyes. Maybe if I find the right trick, I'll find some sort of pattern in it. And I, I don't know that what I see in it is exactly what I was expecting, but there is a pattern to it. Despite its portrait of constant change, the, the chaos of doing and undoing, of becoming and unbecoming, the apparently Pointless cycle of life and death and the futility of peace, constantly giving way to war. We feel that futility constantly, don't we? There is an embedded beauty somehow for those who have the eyes to see. So for one thing, the contrasts that are listed in verses two through eight are composed in 14 lines of pairs. So 28 items, so to speak, 14 and 28 are both multiples of seven, of course, and seven is the biblical number symbolizing perfection. That's God's number. Now, full disclosure, uh, it was a commentary that gave me this bit of information. I did not discover that myself. So someone else already found that, but I think I did discern a pattern of sorts in that the poem consists of six contrasts or compliments and another six contrasts or complements divided in the middle by two reversals. So there's six contrasts, and then there's two reversals, and then another six contrasts. So verse 5 says, cast away stones, gather stones, embrace, refrain from embracing. That's what I'm categorizing as sort of reversals. So it's kind of a 6 6 pattern. And I wondered, is that intentional? I'm not a Bible code guy, but... Might have, I might have looked up the area code, 626, to see is this some prophecy? It's not, by the way. I, and, and, and I don't know. I don't have an answer for you. It might not mean really anything, but, it's a, but it is a pattern which tells me something. It tells me that there's a form to the chaos, whether I see it or not. The constant, futile churning of life is expressed in Ecclesiastes 3 in a poem. Solomon just could have said, hey, it's all a mess. It's all changing constantly. It's terrible. Life is vapor. And he does some of that. But then he also says, hey, let me put this to you in some verse. Let me sing you a song. It's got some rhythm to it. It's got a pattern to it. What does this tell us? This tells us there's an author who is holding all of this mess together. We may see the back of the tapestry right now. And it's a mess. We just see loose threads everywhere, no discernible portrait. But in the by and by, we will see as that tapestry turns,
1: oh,
0: this is the picture he was creating through all of that. What we see as chaotic or anarchic Futile, meaningless, actually has an order, a form, a design to it. The raging sea, in fact, follows uh, patterns of tides and currents. The vast nothingness of space contains cycles and orbits. Every washed up seashell on every distant shore and every withered sunflower in every unexplored field contains the mathematical Fibonacci sequence inside of it. Our world is not ruled by chance. We're not subject to fate. Hebrews 1 tells us that Christ is upholding the universe by the word of his power. This means that as chaotic and futile as this world may seem, it's not out of control. It's under the sovereign control of the divine author of the whole story of creation, the whole story of humanity, over all of the crazy ups and downs and ins and outs of life, reigns the Lord our God, who alone is great and greatly to be praised. And here in the midst of Ecclesiastes 3, we're told to keep in our vision. Don't forget, don't take your eyes off of this, the glory of the one true God, just as we're told throughout all of the scriptures. His glory is greater than all things. Leviticus twenty-two, thirty-two: you must not profane my holy name. I must be treated as holy among the Israelites. I am the Lord. Isaiah 55, verses eight through nine, for my thoughts are not your thoughts. And your ways are not my ways, declares the Lord, for as heaven is higher than earth, so my ways are higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Psalm 2, verses 2 through 4, the kings of the earth take their stand, the rulers conspire together against the Lord and his anointed one, let's tear off their chains and throw their ropes off of us. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. Jeremiah 32, 17. Ah, Lord God, behold, you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and by your outstretched arm. Nothing is too difficult for you. Or Jeremiah ten, six, there is none like you, O Lord. You are great. Our toils and troubles may be great, but our God is greater still. Are you struggling? having trouble making sense of life are are you thinking man it's just i get up in the morning go to work go to school whatever it's just the same thing every day i don't feel like i'm making any headway i i don't sense that there's any substance to what i'm doing i don't sense any response to what i'm doing is is what i'm doing making any difference in this life in this world or am i just like a hamster on a wheel it's time to envision god's greatness the glory of God is clarifying, it is stabilizing, it is transforming. The divine sovereignty of God is your anchor and your pillow. Acknowledging his control of the universe and his authority over your life is how you keep from going crazy. Solomon earlier writes in Proverbs, The heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. Echoing his father David in Psalm thirty-one fifteen, which in the ESV reads, My times are in your hand. We may not know what time it is, but he always does. And out of all the things he wants us to know it's time for, he most of all wants you to know that thirdly and finally, it's time to embrace God's grace. It's time to embrace God's grace. The major problem addressed in Ecclesiastes 3 is not how we will know what to do with our lives practically, but how we'll know what to do with our lives spiritually. Solomon's primary concern here is not how we'll make it through the day, but how we'll make it through the last day. Verse 17, God will judge the righteous and the wicked. He is not like us. He reigns over us. He reigns over all things. So he has the right to judge all things, including us. Now, how do we know if we'll stand before him as righteous or wicked? That's the question that I wonder about. He's going to judge the righteous and the wicked. How do I know if I'm going to be in the place of the righteous or I'm going to be in the place of the wicked? How do you know if you'll be judged as good or bad? I guess that's the question. And anyone who thinks spiritually in the world, even if they're not Christians, if they think religiously or spiritually, they think along these lines. There's good people and there's bad people. And whatever waits on the other side, whether it's heaven or nirvana or enlightenment or whatever it is, the good people go to the good place and the bad people go to the bad place. How does Solomon answer that dilemma? The question at the end of the passage, I think, is a provocative one that gets us looking at the biblical lens. Verse 22, the second part. Who can bring him to see what will be after him? Meaning after he dies. Well, Who can enable us to see? God can. He's given us a vision beyond the here and now, beyond the seemingly pointless toil of everyday life. He wants us to follow the gifts, all the things we enjoy. He wants us to follow those gifts of common grace, like a trail of breadcrumbs right to the bread of life. Jesus Christ himself. Jesus who has entered our world, lived as we live, tempted as we're tempted, But does it all without sin, without disobedience, without embracing injustice, in fact, suffering, being a victim in some sense, although he is, you know, puppeting the whole thing himself, of injustice. He endures the injustice of the cross in order to accomplish God's justice for sinners who desire salvation. What time is it? It's it's time to embrace this gift of grace, this news. It's time to repent of our sin and receive his salvation through Christ's cross and resurrection. When you go upward, how will you stand in God's judgment? How can you know if you will stand with the righteous or be condemned with the wicked? Because it's true, all roads do lead to the same place. They all go to the judgment seat of God. They all go to the judge Jesus Christ and there they diverge into the endless paradise of enjoyment of God's kingdom in a restored creation, drenched with heaven's glory, or into the endless torment of God's wrath. It's time to embrace God's grace. It's time now, not tomorrow. That might be too late. The best time to have laid hold of Christ by faith is yesterday, but the second best time is now. The Bible says today is the day of salvation. It says, choose this day whom you will serve. And the cross and resurrection of Jesus are proof that he loves you. He loves you and stands ready to save you this very moment. He couldn't give you any bigger proof of his love than to lay his own life down for you. Embrace his grace without putting it off any longer. And if you will turn to Christ, wave that white flag of surrender and trust in him, he will forgive you forever and he will give you the gift of eternal life. And in fact, if you wonder, how do I become a good person? The Bible says there is no one good, no, no, not one. What we all know deep inside, none of us is good enough. The Bible says Christ is good. And if you trust in him, he will give you his goodness the best person who ever lived will clothe you in his righteousness. It's the only way to stand before a holy God and be considered good is to be clothed in Christ. It's time to enjoy God's gift of salvation. It's time to envision the greatness of his love and God's greatest gift and the apex of his greatness are both shown in the grace of Jesus Christ. Only he can make you righteous enough to stand in the judgment to come. So in the end, the wisdom of Ecclesiastes 3 kind of foreshadows the doctrine that we see in the book of Jude, all the way towards the end of the New Testament. And I'll finish with this. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gift of the gospel. We do not deserve the grace of your Son Christ Jesus, and yet you give it freely and abundantly and affectionately. Please keep us in awe of this great salvation. We thank you for the gift of your word. Help us to cherish it as we ought to. But Lord, as we fall short every single day, The good things that we know to do, we find that we don't do them. The bad things we know not to do, we find ourselves drawn over and over and over again to those things. We thank you for the grace of your son, Jesus Christ, who covers all of our sin and gives us the freedom to walk in joy. Be with us now as we continue to worship and the rest of the week and the rest of our lives. We thank you so much and we pray these things in Christ's name,
1: amen. What a a powerful word, Um, just a reminder for us of the sobriety of life, and I think sometimes, as, as Jared mentioned, our culture and the pace of our life, especially in an urban area, can be that we don't stop and think about these things often enough, and so... We're going to move into our time of response. Um, if you're our follower of Christ, you know where you stand with him today. You've put your faith in him. You've experienced new life in him. Uh, we are going to invite you to take communion uh, sometime over this next song. You can come to one of our communion stations and take that. You can either t- take it uh, back to your seat or sort of step to the side and take it. Um, if you're not a Christian, don't know where you stand today, we're glad you're here. We hope this message uh, encouraged you, challenged you maybe in some ways to explore further what it means to to believe in Christ. Um, we don't That's that's part of our hope and desire as a church is that we would be a place that uh, p- people can come and explore what it means to follow Jesus. Uh, we'll have people over here by the window through the rest of the service to pray with you. You can mark on your connection card, drop that in the offering basket and we'll follow up with you. Um, And uh, again, I'd love to meet any of you after the service is over. Let's go ahead and stand. I'll pray. And then we can respond together. Jesus, we thank you that you have done everything that ever will be needed for us to be reconciled to the Father. And as we take the bread and are reminded of your body broken for us, as we take the cup and are reminded of your blood poured out for us, we give thanks. We give thanks, we envision your greatness and we rejoice in your grace today. May we truly encounter you afresh and anew, even as we take communion again. In your great name we pray, amen.